Bible, you're probably already there, but we're in the Gospel of John. And if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are giving them out. If you need one, just, uh, just let them know. So we're in the Gospel of John, and uh, Jesus said, we're in John 6, by the way, but Jesus said in John 16, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Now, I wasn't expecting anybody to say amen there. And that's good, but that's the reality. Everyone in this room, everyone in Harvest Kids, everyone over at Walmart at at this moment right now is either in the middle of a problem or one is on the way. That's the reality. Because our world is broken by sin, we will have trouble. So that's the bad news. But here's the good news for Christians. And this is where everyone should say amen. Here's the good news. Even though Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, in Matthew 28 he says, but behold, I am with you always. You got it. Always, not sometimes. Always to the end of the age. Not for a moment. Always, I am with you. There's never a moment, there's never any trouble that comes into your life where you are without Jesus Christ. He is with you always, he says. Always. This is true for everyone in all times, in good times, in hard times, in big troubles, and in small ones. This is the main thing I want in your mind today. The main thing I want you to leave here with today is this. In the middle of my struggle, Jesus is near. In the middle of my struggle, Jesus Christ is near to me. And he's not just near hanging out. He is near to us working, we're going to see. Working in our lives. Working to grow our faith. He came near to us to meet our ultimate needs. And he is near to us, giving us his peace. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. So after this, Jesus went, on, went on away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And the large crowd is still following Jesus. But here's the thing about this crowd. We've been saying, this crowd that is following Jesus, they're not following him because they truly believe in him. They're only following Jesus because of the signs that he is doing. They're following Jesus because they want to use him. They think they can get something from him. And so Jesus goes up the mountain, but even as he goes up the mountain, he can't get away from them. They're still advancing towards him. Look at verse 5. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, what are we to, what, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So this large crowd is there. Jesus has compassion on them because they've, they've been following him and being around him the whole day. And so he's, he wants to feed them. And so he looks at Philip and he's like, Philip, where are we going to find food to feed all these people? He asked them this question, but verse 6 tells us why he asked it. He said he asked it to test him. He did it to test him. Here's our first point. Jesus tests our faith because he is loving. He tests our faith because he is loving. And Philip fails the test. His response makes it very obvious. Look at verse 7. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get 
a little. 200 denarii was actually eight months worth of pay. And so he looks at Jesus and he says, even if we had eight months worth of money to buy bread, there wouldn't be enough to feed everyone that is here. He says to Jesus, what you're saying is impossible. Philip's not the only one who fails the test. Andrew's even less confident. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Philip's like, this is impossible. Andrew's beginning to despair. He's like, how can we do this? This is impossible. We can't, can't solve this. They feel powerless. Have you ever felt like that? A situation rolls into your life, maybe one of them rolled in this week, and it, you just feel your weakness. You feel how small you are. You feel your humanity. You feel powerless. See, what this passage does, it reminds us there's all kinds of problems in our lives that come into our lives that we can't solve on our own. They're just, they're way too big for us to solve. And in those moments, what God is doing is he's giving us an opportunity. We can in those moments turn and humble ourselves and come to him and say, this is too big for me. I cannot solve this. We we acknowledge our weakness and ask God for help. We humble ourselves and we say, you Take this. I cannot do it. And we do this. We humble ourselves in these ways because he's near to us always. He's always with us. So Jesus tests them to show that they they don't fully understand who he is. They don't know who is near to them. See, he's showing what's going on inside of them. He's showing them that in hard times, their temptation is only to look at human solutions. To only begin to trust in themselves or trust in other human beings. That's the temptation. That That is where they will turn. They're quick to do that. He's showing them what they cannot see. It's like a flashlight, right? You shine it into a dark room. You start to see things. God the Father did something very similar to The people of Israel in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8. Verse 2 says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. How did he humble you? Testing you to know what was in your heart. See, when God tested them to know what was in their heart, it wasn't because God didn't know. He's God. He knew. They didn't know. And so he, he, he's showing them what is going on. He's showing them what they could not see. He was bringing them into reality. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. And because Jesus loves us, he allows things to come into our lives to, to expose, to show where we are in our faith. He allows things to come that test us. And sometimes what those tests reveal, it's, it's not pretty. Because what we see is not, a, is not a quick to run to the feet of Jesus, but it's a quickness to run to ourselves. To go to something else to try and solve the problem. See, Jesus wants us to know this about ourselves. Because he wants to give us an opportunity to grow. 
He shows this to us so that we would have an opportunity to grow. So that the next time that thing comes into your life, that hard thing shows up. So that next time you will turn to him and not to yourself. And so it's a loving thing that he's doing by showing us where we trust ourselves and not him. So that we have opportunities to turn to him in the future. Going to him, asking him, saying, you work it out, Jesus. I'm putting it at your feet. You are God. I am not. And so I'm asking you to do it. And, and we pray and ask him to give us the strength to sustain us as we wait on him to sort it out. He tested them to grow them. Here's something you should remember from this passage. Sometimes the hard thing that is going on in your life isn't the enemy attacking you. It's Jesus working to grow you. That difficult thing in your life, it's not always Satan at work. Sometimes it's Jesus working to grow you, to make you more like him because he loves you. And so he's working on us. Even though the disciples failed the test, Again, Jesus is loving. He doesn't leave them hanging. John says he knew what he was going to do. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, have the people sit down. Notice he doesn't even answer their question. He's like, okay, guys, let's just have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, verse 10. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Here's point number two. Jesus meets our need because he's generous. He meets our need because he is generous. Jesus says a prayer. He gives thanks. And then he works a miracle. There was more than enough for everyone to eat. Verse 7 says, as much as they wanted. Jesus turned this thing into an all-you-can-eat buffet, and you didn't have to pay $22.99. As much as they wanted. He wasn't stingy with the food. And don't miss also the servant heart of Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Jesus serves the food. The creator serving those he created. He's a good host. He took hospitality seriously. And think about this. Many of those people there were only there to use him. But that doesn't stop him from serving them. He's aware of that. There's no limit to his generosity. He serves them anyway. He shows generosity to all people. See, Jesus models for us the life of love, service, hospitality, and generosity that we are called to live with. And we're called to live this way towards all people. Everyone, Christians and non-Christians, people from different backgrounds, people who don't think like we do, people who don't believe like we do. We are to show love to all people because every single person is created in the image of God. We share a common humanity. Francis Schaeffer said this, all men and women are our neighbors and we are to love them 
as ourselves. We are to do this on the basis of creation, even if they're not redeemed. For all men and women have value because they're made in the image of God. Therefore, they are to be loved, even at great cost. Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And everyone really means everyone. As God gives us opportunity, we are to live a life of love towards everyone. And as a local church, we can do this in our community. As we ask the Holy Spirit to show us those around us who have needs, show us the way as a church we can, we can, we can sort of get outside the walls and care for those around us. As individuals, we can do, live like this towards our neighbors, towards our friends, towards the people we work with, even strangers. As we have opportunity, we are to do good to everyone. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, now you're like, how can I live like this? What gives me the power to live a life of generosity and service and hospitality? How, what makes this possible? The gospel makes it possible. Because in the gospel, we're told just how generous Jesus was towards us. See, the gospel tells us what Jesus did to meet our ultimate need. The gospel tells us that Jesus had everything. But he gave up everything for us. That's what the gospel says. That he had everything in heaven, but he gave all of it up in order to save and rescue those who had lost everything. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, sorry, chapter 8. says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake. He became poor. Think about that. Sometimes we should just kind of sit and let the word sort of touch us in the ways the Bible wants it to touch us. That he was rich, but for your sake. For my sake. Because of our sin. He was rich, but he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, there are some liars out there that are going to tell you that means monetary. But this is talking about being rich in salvation. That we have everything. We have the one thing that we need more than anything else, all because Jesus was willing to sacrifice, all because Jesus was willing to be generous towards us. So now, because we have all of this from Jesus Christ, we don't hold it to ourselves. We spread it around. We're generous with our love towards other people. We live a life of generosity and service, and the gospel, when we have that in mind, it will sustain our ability to do that towards all people, even at great cost to ourselves. And so after they've eaten and are feeling blessed, Jesus has the disciples collect the leftovers. Look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, 
gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus wants nothing lost. And he's actually giving them a picture of how he will gather all those who belong to him in the end. Every person who is trusting in Christ. That's why he says in in verse 39 of this same chapter, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given to me, but I shall raise it up on the last day. True believers in Jesus Christ have eternal security. That we will be raised on the last day because Jesus Christ guarantees it. He is going to make sure of it. And so he feeds them all. And then look how they respond. Verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Notice they don't say this is a prophet. They say this is the prophet. And they say this because they have been waiting for centuries for a prophet to come. A prophet that Moses promised would come. Deuteronomy 18. It's coming. There it is. It says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses says this. He promises that there's a prophet coming. But Deuteronomy ends like this. 34 verse 10 says. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Whom the Lord knew face to face. So there's this promise that this prophet would come. And this prophet would make all the difference. There's this promise. But then it hasn't happened. And so they have been waiting and waiting for centuries. And Moses, the one who put this down, he would have been on their minds. Because in verse 4, if you look back, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John tells us it's Passover time. And so we've said this because we've, we've, we've sort of been working through the gospel of John. Pastor Ted said this, Pastor Chris said this. The Passover was a time where the Jews celebrated how God rescued them from slavery, how he used Moses in a powerful way through all kinds of signs, and how God used Moses to serve them, uh, sort of uh, feed them in the wilderness. And so when Jesus does something similar, they're like, hey, this is, this is what Moses said. He's doing things like Moses did, and so they're like, this is the prophet we have been waiting for. They respond with excitement. And that's because when Jesus was born, when he came to earth, the the Jews were under the rule of Rome. And so in a very real way, they were back in slavery. And so they think Jesus can lead us out of this. And that's what they want from him. This is their chance at freedom in their minds. That's why in verse 15 they try to make him king. Look at it. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to start a revolution. And so they 
it says that they were willing to take him by force. That's how bad they wanted this. They were willing to take him, it says, by force in verse 15 and make him their king. They're thinking, we've got 5,000 men here. There's 5,000. With the right leader, we can, we can liberate ourselves. We can get ourselves out of the oppression that we have been under. See, the people wanted to control Jesus. And Jesus is the prophet they've been waiting for. He is the king. But here's the thing about Jesus. He will be controlled by no one. We can't control Jesus. We can't make Jesus do whatever we want to do. He is king. See, deliverance wouldn't come by Jesus being placed on a throne. Deliverance would come by Jesus being placed on a cross. The crucifixion had to come before the coronation. And Jesus was focused on the cross. That's why in verse 38 of the same chapter, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Nothing could get Jesus off the plan. Nothing could, could stop him from going to the cross. He was focused on it. The, the plan made by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past to rescue us. Nothing could stop him from fulfilling that plan. Here's another reason to love Jesus. You should have said amen there. Here is another, we, we should love Jesus for this. He was so focused, so committed to saving us that nothing could stop him from doing what he had come to do. And so he slips away. He leaves for some much needed time alone. And then later, his disciples head to Capernaum, and, but they're going without him. Look at verse 16. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. He got into a boat and started across the sea. Sorry, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had, come, had not come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Here's our final point. Jesus calms our fears because he is God. He calms our fears because he is God. It's dark. The disciples are rowing in a rough storm. And Jesus comes, but they are afraid. Verse 19 says, when they, they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, but they were frightened. And you got to try to picture this, right? I, try to, I want to kind of set the scene a little bit for us on what this may have looked like. It's raining. The sea is, the, you know, it's really sort of choppy. In the first service, I was rowing like this and rowing like this, but somebody said, that's not how you row. And so... They were in the boat sort of going like this, going like this, going like this, going like this, going like this. That's kind of weird, but going like this. <laughs> Philip's like, come on, Andrew, do you think we're going to make it? He's like, I don't know. The boat's sort of rocking all over the place, and they're rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. Where, what's Jesus doing? He's like that high school kid just walking on the sea. <laughs> right? Jansport backpack, some hirachis. Calm. 
And why can he be this calm? Because it's God coming to them. In full control of his creation. In the gospel of Matthew, it says that they thought he was a ghost. It's not, this is no ghost. The creator of the universe is coming to them. Psalm 107. I'm tired from all that rowing. <laughs> Trying to catch my breath. I'm literally tired. <laughs> Psalm 107. Here it is. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. Job 9 verse 8 says, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the wave of the sea. Jesus is coming to them calm, in full control. This is their creator, in full control of his creation. And this is why Mitch Stokes is right when he says this to people who deny miracles. He says this, God, according to traditional Christianity, is constantly and directly involved in creation. He is at this very moment keeping the cosmos in existence and actively governing all its aspects. Nothing would continue to exist if God did not continually sustain it. Nor would anything in the universe do anything without his causing it, either directly or indirectly. This has an important implications for an extremely popular argument against miracles. Hume famously defined miracles as a violation of of a law of nature. But laws of nature aren't objects out there invariably causing things to happen. Rather, they're descriptions of the way nature ordinarily behaves. Statements of regularities. According to Christian theism, laws are descriptions of the way God ordinarily does things. Miracles aren't events in which God finally shows up and violates some law of nature. Miracles are simply instances where God does things differently. In full control, Jesus here is doing things differently. He calmed the storm. He calmed their fears by showing them that he has power over everything, that he is in full control. And that's why he says to his disciples, it is I. Don't be afraid. And notice where he says this. He says it in the middle of the storm. Jesus is with them in the storm. In the middle of the storm, he comes to them. When it's roughest, when it's the darkest point of it, he comes and he says, it is I. In the middle of it, he is with them. Coming near. And this was true for them. And it's also true for you and for me. See, we are in this boat. It's called life. And because our world is broken again by our sin, storms are going to come. We are going to end up on some choppy seas. That is guaranteed to happen. But if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him, if you have laid your life down at his feet, then you need to understand that Jesus is with you in the storm-tossed boat. I'm going to do that again so we can say it even louder because it's true. Jesus is with us in the boat. Right in the middle. 
Amen from the back. <laughs> right in the middle. And you know what he's saying? I got you. It is I. Don't be afraid. He calms our fears. And he brings with that. He, he bring, his presence comes and his peace comes with all of that. Again, I'm not just saying this just to try to get you hyped. Though you should be. I'm saying it because I want to increase our faith. I'm saying it because I want to comfort you in whatever you're going through at this moment. That Jesus is there with you. Whatever it is. Maybe it's not there right now, but something is coming. That you will know that he is there with you working. The power and presence of Jesus calmed them. But notice also the word of Jesus calmed them. He speaks. He says, don't be afraid. The word of Jesus has the same effect on us now. In those moments where you're feeling fearful and anxious, in those moments where you're feeling powerless, we can make a regular habit of turning to the word of God. It's there that we're reminded of the ways Jesus loves us. It's there that we're reminded of the ways the Holy Spirit is working and helping us in our life. It's there in the word that we're reminded that God is on our side. It's there that we are calmed. It's from the word that we are, we are prepared for the coming storm. And so we are to have a regular habit and can have a regular habit of opening the word of God and letting God speak to us where we need it and letting him prepare us for what is coming. And so we are to let the word dwell in us richly. Know the word. Memorize the word. Store it there so that when the storm comes, you can hear the voice of God in the middle of it. John says in verse 21, they were glad, happy to take him into the boat. See, the disciples show us how everyone is to receive Jesus Christ. They gladly welcomed him into the boat. If you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have to understand that you are going through a dark, stormy, broken world by yourself. That you are choosing to live through a, a very difficult world all on your own. But you don't have to stay that way. Because Jesus Christ is near to you and calling you to place your faith in him. So that he can give you his peace. So he can give you his help and love. And so you are to gladly... Today, take that step of gladly welcoming him into the boat of your life. Now, the ending of the passage encourages me and it should encourage you. Look at verse 21 again. It says, they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Here's another reminder to us that those who are trusting in Christ will always reach the promised destination. We are going to get home. We are going to make it to heaven. Jesus promises that. See, in the middle of my struggle, he is near, always near to me. 
And that means he will shepherd and care for us in that struggle. Guiding us. Sometimes he uses the church to do that. He definitely uses his word to do that. Strengthening us. Giving us the encouragement that we need in all the hard moments as he safely and gently guides us home. We are going to make it because he is with us and we are in his hand. It's guaranteed. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, as we have opened your word, I pray we would, we would have seen all the ways Jesus is so good to us. That hard things come. And when we look at him and we're like, this is impossible, this cannot be done, he just steps in. And Lord, he does that in his perfect timing. And so I, I pray, God, that whatever we're going through, we would wait on you as you work it out. I pray you would give us the strength, Father, that we need as we live through these things. And Father, for those who are having, there's nothing going on, there is there is a promise that something is coming. And so I pray you'd prepare our hearts for that. And Father, for the person who is living without Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their heart and they would turn today. They would welcome Jesus into their life the way the disciples welcomed him into the boat because he is God who gave all for us and loves us so much. So Father, we thank you for your son. And I pray, Lord, we would sing his praises now. In Jesus' name, amen.